Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, cybersecurity expert Eleanor Saita. If you have a system where you have very strong community ties, those community ties are much harder to break down. They're thicker, they're based on deeper forms of interdependence. Eleanor will be helping us contend with perhaps the greatest existential quandary of the digital age. What is real? How do I know I am me? And is it safe? It's time to intervene on behalf of the humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. One of the great culture and consciousness pioneers of our time passed away this past week. I'm talking about John Barlow, who was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. He's the one who did You Are the Eyes of the World and a whole lot of great uh, Bob Weir songs, mostly. Uh, he was a founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a, uh, well, a great uh, patriarch, if you will, of the uh, of the digital generation. I first got to know uh, John Barlow through, I guess, through Timothy Leary back in the uh, late 1980s when uh, the internet hadn't even really happened yet, but we were beginning to network. We were doing uh, some cyberpunky kind of homebrew computer club style antics. And uh, Timothy, uh, Timothy Leary was in on it from the beginning. He really saw uh, digital technology and computing as 
the psychedelics for the next century. He really believed that the internet experience was as profound, as connecting, as, you know, all is one and consciousness expanding as, as any psychedelic. And in some ways he was right. The internet is like a psychedelic substrate and much of the world utterly unprepared for just how profound an experience the the internet creates, um, they're having a bad trip. You know, that's what that's what's going on. That's what fake news is. Fake news is like the hallucinations on a on a bad acid trip, uh, and it's it's part of the reason why folks like John Barlow, although as I'll argue, he he may have had some uh, uh, I think. Uh, profound misunderstandings about how an economy and society work as an experienced acid head um, he offered a a kind of a ballast for a young culture that was about to enter into this new weightless highly connected realm of human experience so he really offered something he offered something important. You know, John Barlow, character-wise, he was like this, you know, Wyoming rancher, macho dude. He was the one that, after JFK died, uh, Jackie O sent young John John uh, to go spend summers on the farm in Wyoming, you know, uh, uh, with the cattle and the, and the, and the hay um, to kind of butch him up, I guess she was thinking, because he didn't have a dad. So John Barlow became his father figure, which I guess is both, uh, if you know John, uh, it would be both a, a, a dream come true and a, and a really scary thought as well. Um, you know, he was someone you'd want to sometimes take in small doses because he was a, a demanding and macho dude in the traditional sense of macho. Um, but again, for better or for worse, uh, as the internet you know, came into its own, John took an interesting turn. Um, originally, he was really part of that, just that West Coast cyber culture, the well, the the cyberdelic, Terrence McKenna, Tim Leary, uh, what are we doing to human consciousness? Let's go for it. And by the early 90s, the government had gotten uh, a little paranoid about the internet. I mean, partly it was it was because of all these kids, the young hackers, you know, Craig Nadorf and Fiber Optic, and I mean, these are names that I don't know. Maybe all the old people remember. They were hacking into things like shopping malls or AT and T. It was the really early pre-internet days when you hacked in fairly directly into these uh, into these systems. And they weren't doing it maliciously so much as experimentally. I mean, these were kids, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids whose neurons were still growing. And in some ways, the internet felt to them like an extension of the dendrites of their own nervous systems. I mean, the, 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 they didn't even have their, you know, their ganglionic sheaths yet, the, the, the things that develop in your 20s to uh, uh, inhibit uh, direct exploration. But just as kids like me would have, you know, looked for secret passages in our high school, and I found them. I found the uh, civil defense closets in my high school and the food that was there and the bandages. I mean, 
and commodes. It's really interesting. But that's what these kids were doing. They were exploring the sort of the back channels. Oh, here's the thermostat of a shopping mall 15 miles away. How could I raise it three degrees and could I get away with it? I mean, those were what they were doing, but the government was really afraid and the companies were really afraid of what these kids were doing. So they launched something called Operation Sun Devil, where they broke into these kids' houses, you know, and they took away these young teens in handcuffs and, you know, they, they didn't understand quite when you put these kids in jail. And so it was a, uh, a time when government was seen uh, kind of as the the enemy to a free, open, experimental, countercultural internet. At the same time, they were passing something called the Computer Decency Act, which they were using pornography and the fear of kids seeing porn as a way of clamping down on all sorts of uh, websites and things that they didn't like. So while that was going on, um, Wired Magazine, which w- had its own agenda, and we've talked about that before, Wired Magazine's agenda was really to take the internet away from Mondo 2000 and the weird West Coast cyberdelic hippie people and make it safe for business. So they had their own agenda, and they were talking about the long boom and the expansion of the economy and this very strident kind of a neo-libertarian line that they were pushing. They commissioned John Barlow to write a Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, as written by John Perry Barlow at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, on February 8th, 1996. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. We have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one, so I address you with no greater authority than that with which liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement, we have true reason to fear. So he goes on and on, basically saying that this is a space where we're going to form our own social contract and we do not need government to regulate us or get in our way. This is going to be a new thing. Well, what I don't know if he realized it, but, uh, What many of us didn't realize at the time, and maybe we were just psychedelic rave kids, was that if you get rid of government, if you kick them off this thing and say, we don't need you anymore, you end up creating a very fertile soil for corporations to grow in their stead. You know, at the time, way back when, you weren't allowed to advertise online. It was a safe space. It was protected. It was really a a government... uh, 
a government-regulated commons where only non-commercial activity could happen. By getting rid of government, it's like when you take too many antibiotics and you kill you know, all the bacteria in your system and you end up getting fungal. You end up getting a candida infection. When you get rid of government, you end up creating a space where corporations grow. So not to say, oh, we can blame Barlow for the corporatization of the net, but the the approach that he was arguing for ended up being uh, much more libertarian and much more uh, open to corporate expansion than many of us realized at the time. So now, you know, now that he's passed, it's interesting, I, I've been looking on some of the, the progressive uh, cyber lists. There's there's one called Net Time that has been around since the beginning. And, uh, you know, one person talked about, oh, you know, John Barlow passed and, you know, one of our heroes, he was one of the, the, the people who knows Ed Snowden pretty well and, you know, helped do some, arrange some interviews with Ed Snowden for conferences. And yeah, he's always been a, a, a arguing strong and hard for, you know, freedom to do what we want in this space and against uh, NSA and government surveillance and the kinds of stuff that Google and Facebook are doing. But uh, immediately on that list and on some others, people are like, oh, you know, good riddance, this guy is a libertarian. And, you know, one person even said, uh, you know, it's all nice and good for you to like him as a person. You know, I have an uncle who was an SS agent for the Nazis, and I he was a nice person, but I can never forgive what he really did. I don't know if we need to compare compare someone that's partly a product of this digital age that we're in and how extreme everybody's feeling. I don't know if we need to uh, compare everybody who's doing something that we don't agree with. You said some some wrong stuff to to the Nazis. But if anything, to look at a uh, to look at a person and their even their their celebrity and their influence, you know, less is some blame on that person, but more as a reflection of us as a culture. I mean, I was uh, for a long time, really, till the late '90s. I was just a, a straightforward fan of John Barlow and what he was saying about the net because I didn't know. You know, I was enthusiastic about this stuff. I only knew as a as a you know pot smoking college kid. I only knew government and cops as potential threats, and I didn't even understand what business was. I never thought I would even get a job, much less ever interact with a corporation. So it it, it was you know my fault and everyone's fault and every raver's fault. None of us understood at the time the profound political acts that we were taking. If rave kids had understood that what was most profound about rave was not taking ecstasy and trying to connect with UFOs, but taking charge of a public space and using it for ecstatic ritual, you know, reclaiming the right to assemble in that way. Uh, the same way if those of us who were on the net understood that we were creating a non-commercial zone and how powerful that was um, and what that meant, we may have, uh, well, at least more consciously attempted to resist the onslaught. You know, it wasn't until 97, really, that I started arguing that, uh-oh, 
um, this is this is getting serious, partly because I couldn't imagine on a place as decentralized and connected and loving as the net, I couldn't imagine the priorities of the stock market or NASDAQ or e-commerce. I couldn't imagine them overtaking the more humanistic sensibilities. But in some ways, I feel like they may have run their course. You know, if I'm uh, an early adopter, then I'm also an early disadopter. You know, I'm the one who left Facebook in what, uh, 2011, because I saw what was going on there. And, and now here we are, you know, doing Team Human. Here we are trying to reclaim uh, reality, both online and off, for human endeavors rather than really business or government. You know, we understand that commerce is important because commerce is the way that we can exchange value. We understand that government is important because government is the way that we can regulate the commons in which we live. So we welcome both. Uh, we just want both of them to be inspired by human need and human goals uh, rather than the, the, the goals of their own institutions, which... Uh, uh, as we've seen time and time again, uh, tend to overtake whatever connective and uh, uh, convivial uh, function uh, for which they may have been created. So anyway, I take the, the good with the bad. I was scared of John Barlow. I'll admit it. If you, you listen to Pink Floyd or something in a party, he'll stamp in the room and say, Anyone who wants to say that Pink Floyd is better than the Grateful Dead, stand up and I'll fight you right now. I mean, <laughs> stuff like that. It was crazy. He was like our uh, uh, kind of the, the our drunken strong guy in the corner of the bar. Um, yeah, <laughs> he didn't want to cross him, and that didn't always feel good that that uh, that he was a little scary, but. Uh, John threw great parties. John loved life. He lived more in most weeks than most of us live uh, in an entire lifetime. I'm glad I got to know him. I'm glad I walked the same earth with him. Uh, I always loved John Barlow through thick and thin. And, uh, well, I'm going to toast him tonight, one way or another. Love you, John. My name is Walter Kern, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nikki Silvestri, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Stacco Troncoso from the Peer to Peer Foundation, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Are You Serious, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, cybersecurity expert Eleanor Seita. You can find out more about Eleanor at dimaxion.org. That's D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N.org. I guess the easiest the, the easiest way in for me to this whole issue, and it, and it brings us to the other one, is it's almost to quote the, the Laurence Olivier character from Marathon Man of, you know, is it safe? <laughs> is it safe? The, this, what, how do we even go about defining what safety and security is in a digital age? In other words, what's the sort of rubric that you use to even measure? What's the metric? What's the, what are we even after at this point? 
So that's actually a really excellent place to start. I think probably most of my career has been devoted to trying to figure out how to answer the question, what does it mean for this thing to be secure? A lot of people, when they're looking at a security problem, and this is true inside the industry as well, right? We look at, you know, does this thing have any vulnerabilities, right? And then we start digging through different layers where things might go wrong, but safe is not defined with respect to the system. Safe is defined with respect to the context of the system. And this is why in a lot of contexts where I'm in a slightly broader field than the sort of narrow professional one, I say that what I do is I look at how systems break, not at security. And I guess the the other bias that I bring to this is that most of my career, I've been a consultant. And so I'm coming in and I have clients who are expecting an answer within a time box that they can then go use. Right. So it's this very kind of, it is, I think of it certainly, and I, you know, I'm, I'm coming from this position, so I obviously would, but I think of it as a very useful and practical perspective because you have to actually deliver a thing. And so, you know, you have a set of actors who are interacting with a the system. They're mostly human. Some of them may be non-human, but they're mostly human. You have a set of assets, which are things that those humans care about in the world that have probably nothing at all to do with anything digital. And then you have a set of things that those actors want to be able to do with those assets and a set of things that you want that they want them to not happen to those assets. From there, you define a set of security objectives, which include how the overall system should respond. And then you can say, okay, does the system meet its security objectives? you know, to the best of our knowledge, you know, and this means that you're not talking about against an arbitrary attacker, because of course, attackers are are actors too. You're talking about, well, against this attacker with these resources in this context, when the system is configured in this way. And that's now a concrete version of the problem that you can actually start to make statements about, you know, and then you can look at how does the implementation of the system work and map things back and forth? And that's what I call a security ecosystem model. Right. Now, the thing is, if you if you really are in a, a, a true security ecosystem, then what you're protecting, I mean, ultimately might be something that you don't really, that you personally might not feel should be protected. In other words, the bank... Yeah, we know on a, on a rudimentary level, the bank wants to make sure that, you know, Korean hackers can't steal our clients' money, say. Mm -hmm. But we're also protecting, say, the banking system from a certain level of transparency or (laughs) protecting our brand from the the, – for exposure to the reality of what it is that our – the extractive nature of our corporation or something. Absolutely. And I I guess I have – I sort of have two thoughts on that. One is that, you know, this is this is in the nature of really any kind of technological endeavor. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral, right? This is the the kind of oh gosh, I could never remember this idea. <laughs> um, but systems that you're dealing with the security of are the exact same way. You know, the security of Wells Fargo's backend revenue modeling system for its customers is, you know, 
probably the same or fairly, you know, fairly tightly related to the security of its, you know, account holder balance structure system. You know, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. we know the the you know the revenue fi- the revenue modeling side of that was used to do some incredibly unethical stuff. Um, and I think that the you know the larger the larger lesson there is that syst- you know systems are systems, and you have to look at all of the different contexts and all of the different stakeholders. And this is something which I think is right. a very important lesson for a lot of engineers who are working at a lot of different companies that, and I I guess this is one of the reasons why I like the ecosystem models as a tool, because they force you to to make these things a bit more explicit, right? You can have any set of security objectives, but you need to, you know, you have to actually write them down. And then you have to actually say, yes, this system Uh delivers these security objectives. And of course, there are lots of ways around that. You know, I mean, corporations are very good at acting in euphemistic ways when it serves their interests and when it's necessary. But I think it is useful to have that moment of kind of looking through the ethics of a system. Now, the the other point there is that, you know, I am I am a, a change from the outside person, and I've I've kind of always been a change from the outside person. So while on the one hand, I do have a lot of sympathy with you know, maybe some of these big systems shouldn't be secure. Maybe it's not actually good for society. I don't know that that's necessarily true. You know, it is not clear to me that a world where all of the big banks crash because their, you know, their security systems fail is necessarily actually going to result in less suffering (laughs) for the sum total of all sentient beings. Right, the fight club, the fight club fantasy may not be the very best way to, ex- to yeah. execute change yeah. in our society. But coming at it from the other side, though, as I was introduced to, I guess the pre-internet by uh, a young hacker at mm-hmm. the time named Fiber Optic, who was this sweet kid, and he was, you know, showing me how with the phone you can make these sounds and then get these free calls, and then he hooked up his computer and was using Telnet to go in, and it was like, oh my gosh! So my orientation to the internet or to networking was as a breach of security. Mm-hmm. In other words, the whole thing for me is anchored as, oh, this is the way that we crawl around in the in the air ducts of, you know, corporate America, government and and AT&T and communications. And it seemed to me as as someone who appreciated the internet for this whole kind of countercultural open extremely open set of protocols, why the heck? I remember in the early '90s. Why the heck would we put our banking system and security on the internet at all? I mean, was it a mistake on some level to use this kind of rickety, open people sharing network for for commerce and banking and things that need to be maintained at some level of security? I don't think so. I mean, was it a mistake? to start tying so much interstate commerce around trains that routinely shattered their boilers and, you know, blew houses <laughs> next to the tracks off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I think it may be too soon to tell um, about the trains. Um, you know, was it a mistake? 
to uh, to replace horses that that you know shat so many tons of crap into the streets that then we needed fleets of more horses. You know, was it was it a, a mistake to replace that with cars? I mean, it's hard to say. Um, so I think that there's, I think that there's a there's a few different layers to that. One, computers are very very new. We, I think we may be in an interesting point right now of starting to get to the point where we've realized somewhere in the in the early 2000s we the scaling that happened was built on this kind of fundamental laxness and if you were a, a like a, a product like a the the person at Intel who was figuring out what the product line is going to look like you know, you knew very well that the thing that you absolutely can't do is break Moore's law um, because that's the company and except Moore's law broke, you know, and so they started building all of these hacks in to just kind of keep it going. I mean, Moore's law, Moore's law broke in that uh, the, the ability to develop faster and faster chips at a, at a certain pace failed. Yeah. They just couldn't improve on their chips fast enough anymore. Yeah. And, well, and specifically, or rather, they could. They they knew exactly how to do it. The problem was that we would have to learn how to program again, because they got to the point where the only way that they could increase speed was by increasing parallelism, and having more things executing at the same time, in you know, in, in parallel instead of one after another, which is the way everyone was used to writing code. So, they basically waved their hands a bunch and made something that executes in parallel look like something that executes in serial. Except it turns out that you can't actually do that in a way that really properly preserves certain kinds of generality, or at least it's very, very difficult to do so. And so now we're, you know, this was Meltdown and Spectre. And that's the big security problem that everyone's talking about is from that? That's the the root of it, is that... It is trying to turn hardware that is fundamentally parallel into software that is fundamentally serial. Right. Um, and we've still got like, you know, the reason why you have a, a quad core i7 or whatever is because even that ran in, you know, at a certain point, they just had to add more cores and, and add some parallelism. But, you know, it's it's the difference between having that quad core and then having what your graphics card is, which is like a thousand cores operating uh-huh. in parallel. So this is so, all because human beings think in a linear way, one thing after the other, and computers think with multiple things at once. And we're just um, trying to sort of negotiate that. I mean, it's it's there's no reason. It's a little bit more difficult for the humans to think in parallel. But the problem is more that there was a generation of programmers who were trained to write code linearly and Mm -hmm. that it was, it was that all of the professionals would have to rework how they think. Not that they, not that it's impossible, but the, the root problem though, the thing which is interesting for our purposes is that they added a bunch more fundamentally, not necessarily unsound, but um, insufficiently rigorous abstractions in there. And this has happened again and again and again. You know, every 
every single part of the entire ecosystem is built around these kinds of not quite sufficiently rigorous abstractions that were much easier and faster to deploy at scale. And so mm. the problem that we're running into now, and and I think that this is, you know, this is why it's a very interesting time to be in the field, is that we're starting to see all of those and slowly back them out one at a time. You know, and this is us understanding that, okay, steam boilers are great, but we're going to need um, a slightly different attitude towards mechanical engineering, and we're going to need some safety standards and a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of sort of hardware that turns this from this thing, which is really amazing, but blows up half the time to railroads in the 1940s. Hmm. And then when one of these companies or governments or whoever brings you in to help them figure something out, how do they know that you're not like a spy or something, that you're not going to, you know, Chelsea Manning them into oblivion? I mean, at some level, I guess they don't. But, uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, I, I generally don't do government work. And... Right. You know, I mean, it's it's the same. How do you know that your lawyer isn't gonna isn't gonna screw you over, right? You kind of don't. Well, you kind of I mean, don't. If you're you a person, like, okay, you look in their eyes and try to get a sense of them as a and, human. And you look at who they know. Like I, um, right. You know, I am very very confident that my counsel has my best interests at heart because she has right. a pub- a very public track record of doing all the right things for a very, very long time. In some ways, like, you know, okay, I have I have a very specific set of politics that I'm not quiet about. So yeah, so I've definitely had potential clients who are like, well, you know, you your politics are, are too radical for us. And I mean, to me, I'm kind of like, well, you know, like this is, I sort of at least would like to hold myself to the standard of an engineer or a lawyer or any other professional and like, you know, of course, I'm not going to. You know, it's 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 kind of unthinkable to me to like, you know, do that kind of that kind of um, thing. But um, right. But also, yeah. I mean, that the worst it gets is you say this is a client I don't want to work with. You know, I, I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and I mean, separately, yeah. I've definitely had people who've come to me and said we want you to do work for us. I'm like, well, you know, but the, the part that's most interesting to me though about about what you were saying is. Ultimately, the way you're choosing your lawyer or the way a company is choosing you is based on your social yeah, reputation. I mean, finally, security comes down to the people. There is no, in a sense, there's no such thing as digital security that's not dependent finally on these human relationships and who who is loyal to whom and why. Of course. Yeah. And I mean, and this is true. This is true even at a more technical level. Like, I don't know if you saw in the Snowden releases, there was a bunch of discussion on kind of supply chain interdiction, you know, and there are mm. these pictures of like some poor sucker Cisco router getting unpacked in an NSA facility and having its firmware subhorned before it was carefully repacked in stuff that looked like the original manufacturer's packaging and sent on. Um, you know, and this is one of the this is one of the problems that we don't have a uh, that we don't have a really great solution for right now 
is so where do you get the initial trust route from, right? You know, so when we load this page, you know, we see that HTTPS. And that means that our browser has a set of CA certificates and one of those certificates signed the certificate that's used for this page. And we got our browser probably since we're, well, I'm anyway using Chrome. I assume you are as well. We downloaded it from the Google site. And whenever we, you know, had a, had a brand new machine, we went there in Safari or IE or whatever. And we downloaded it over SSL because the browser that we were using to download it from had a set of SSL certificates preloaded in it. And we got that operating system, you know, that, that browser came with the operating system that we got out of a box in a physical store. And we believe that that hasn't been tampered with because we didn't buy it in Shenzhen where they have fake Apple stores. We bought it in New York where they don't have fake Apple stores. And so therefore we think that we can trust the whole entire edifice. That we can trust the entire giant supply chain. Yeah. I mean, the more human-sided issue that this all brings up is, you know, there's no such thing as absolute security. And where, mm-hmm. you know, in spite of how secure computers may look, we understand that even if you don't click on that suspicious email attachment, something could be happening at any moment. But it kind of then forces us or or leads someone like me in a more paranoid moment to ask kind of more fundamental security questions about, well, how do I even prove to other people in the world that I am who I am? I mean, I start thinking about, you know, the Invasion from Mars movie or Body Snatchers, you know, where the kid's looking at his parent and it's like, that's not really my dad anymore, <laughs> you know? So yeah. we get into this truthiness world, you know, that that someone like a Trump really prospers in, where how do we know anything anymore? Who am I? Who are you? What news is real? What news is fake? The FBI and the CIA, well, yeah, they're finding out all this stuff, but well, what if Trump's people are right and the FBI is just as corrupt as it was back in the, you know, uh, 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 Hoover and and G. Gordon Liddy era, and they've just drummed up all this stuff, you know, about Russia that's not even real. You know, you can get into this weird relativistic place where we don't, everything seems possible. You know, where there, even Snopes is no longer the the truth bearer anymore. I mean. I think that the way we the way we create social truth is by collective experience and kind of continuity. You know, and that's, you know, how do you know that, you know, how do I know that you're you? Well, you know, we have a certain set of connections through social circles. You know, that's kind of the that's the the functional proof of identity. I don't even necessarily care about what your legal papers or anything else, like you are the person who is performing Douglas Rushkoff to the world and have been doing so for, for a certain period of time. So that's the social identity, which is useful. And I think that that creation of either doubt or simply 
a feeling of the inability to tell, right? A feeling of, oh, who knows? It's all it's all nonsense anyway. You know, nobody knows kind of thing. That's what the you know, that's what the um the fascists thrive on. They do. They do. And we live in a world where a whole lot of people are <laughs> think that, you know, that the Berenstein Bears title was changed or there's an alternate yeah. reality where it's yeah. spelled differently or that Mandela died in the 80s and then re-died, yeah. you know, in the last I decade. Mean, it's, and this is the, you know, we're, we're both dealing with, like, there's, there's a few interesting things in there. One is that we are currently in the middle of learning just how effective manipulation at scale is at restructuring worldviews and kind of the places where, you know, the places where there are um, vulnerabilities in our kind of collective psyches. And Mm -hmm. we're also learning that actually you don't even necessarily need an active, you know, an active adversary there that simply just living at the scale of there are 3 billion people in your pocket significantly weirds human cognition in ways that we really can't deal with, especially when your gateway to those 3 billion people is somewhat, I'm not going to say actively malicious, but has its own interests in shaping your consciousness in ways that are good for it. You know, this is kind of the, the engagement metric as, you know, the downfall of enlightenment, basically. Mm-hmm. So then what are the ways that you've, because I'm sure you've thought about this, what what lessons from sort of the, the technological security sphere can we then apply to our, our you know, social and, and cognitive and psychic resilience? I mean, I think that the... Um or do you? And you probably work the other way around more often than not. Yeah, you know, I guess you I, probably take lessons from the social and apply it to that. I, but. It goes back and forth. I mean, I think the big mm-hmm. thing, you know, and, and in some some places here, I'm gonna I'm gonna parrot my friend Quinn, you know, Quinn Norton, that one of the biggest things that we need to do to learn how to adapt to living on the internet is to stop caring, and like not actually stop caring, but to stop trying to feel every single tragedy. When you live in a world that will happily serve you up a thousand tragically, you know, died too young, small children before breakfast every single day, you cannot feel those, right? You cannot feel those as though they were the loss of your own child, right? It um, Empathy does not scale. And it is you know, it is critical mm. still have that empathy and to be able to feel towards structural problems, but you cannot take it all into your psyche. You know, this is this is civic inattention, right? It took us a century and a half to learn how to not listen to people sitting next to us in a cafe. We are now all in the same room and we don't know how to ignore each other. And I think the the flip side of that then is that there is a civic responsibility in designing communication systems, which is not yet really recognized, and which is sooner or later, like eventually the its recognition is going to be kind of forced, but probably not until 
a lot more things break. You know, this is the the thing that I think probably some very smart and very empathic people at Facebook are struggling with right now that, oh, hey, we built this thing that now shapes the world and we don't necessarily like the way it is shaping the world. And there are kind of the twin problems of, well, okay, how do we figure out how to be civically engaged and how do we figure out um, what we should do with that civic engagement, you know, and, and this is kind of the question of, well, even if, even if Facebook stops optimizing their system for the good of the venture capitalists and the advertisers, and, you know, let's say Facebook declared itself a nonprofit, sued all of their investors out of existence and said, okay, we're just going to optimize for the good of the world. Um, mm-hmm. Who's good? And who the fuck is Mark Zuckerberg? And what is to that? Define what is the social good for two billion people? Right. right. Is it to you know protect us from all of this negative news so that we're not sensationalized into uh, uh, apathy or numbness, or is it to bring it all to us? I mean, it's it's very interesting when when you talk about the 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 idea that empathy doesn't scale. I mean, this has been a personal problem of mine since you know, before the internet, you know, every birthday before I blew out my candles, I thought about, you know, Sally Struthers and the the commercials she did for the little starving babies with the, yeah. you know, flies on their, on their foreheads. And it's like, how dare I even eat this birthday cake when there's someone suffering during, during the, the, you know, 30, 40 minutes that we've been talking so far, how many rapes were there in Syrian refugee camps? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like, and, and, the internet in some ways makes it more incumbent upon us to recognize that and and do something but well and it's also it's different when like it, uh, there is there is a very different experience when like those people are out there when they're those people right mm-hmm. when you have that oh the nice young gentleman from the BBC told me about this horrible thing that is happening in the world versus when you're just like chatting with them and they're like BRB air raid radio silence. And like, that's a completely disjoint experience, you know? And I, I, um, I know a bunch of folks from the telecomics crew who were doing, um, trying to keep folks online in various places. They did a, they were the folks who fax bombed all of Egypt with dial-up lines during the revolution, when the the regime was trying to cut off the uh, cut off internet access, and they were doing a lot of work in Syria, and and this was kind of Syria before things completely fell apart in the early days of of what looked like it was going to be the revolution, and it broke those people. You know, it broke a lot of those folks because everyone they were working with disappeared, one by one, and. Mm. And of course, you know, this is some random bunch of hackers, mostly in the, you know, in the white Western world. And, you know, and theirs isn't the tragedy, you know, obviously, you know, but this is also, this is, you know, secondary trauma syndrome. And this is kind of the, this is the accelerated version. But I have a friend who got a, who had a heart attack from politics, 
politics, like, you know, from the political news, you know, was basically following politics too closely and had a heart attack. Hmm. She's quite young, you know, it was a stress heart attack. And, you know, and, and these are, you know, I mean, these are anecdotes, but this is, we don't, we don't know what to do about that yet. This is the same problem as the problem of manipulation at scale. It's the same problem of, uh, you know, the elections getting shifted. It's it's all kind of that one ball of we have now built the steam engine and it keeps blowing up and we don't really understand it, let alone know how to fix it. And we're tied to it cognitively, psychically. Our our neurology is is, you know, where where we end and it begins is really hard <laughs> to figure out at this point. Yeah. Also, I mean, we're tied to it infrastructurally. Like, I mean, you know, a bunch of people t- like, oh, you should quit Facebook. I'm like, I'm sorry. I live in Scandinavia. This is the only way I have to contact most people I know because it's their communication channel. You know, yes, I could literally never get invited to a party again. There's a real cost to these things. I mean, I am I am right. made hopeful by... In some ways, I'm made hopeful by the willingness of, for example, the EU to start trying to regulate and to start trying to figure out these things. On the other hand, you know, I also remember that internet that was built out of other people's computers and other people's <laughs> internet connections and all of this crazy stuff and, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights and Cyberspace and all the rest of it. And no, the EU is not going to build that world with regulation and has no interest in trying. Um, you know, and there are there are places where, you know, folks are pushing decentralization and federation and end-to-end encryption as kind of top-level goals. And those there are places where that is getting regulatory traction, but it is still likely to end up being a very different internet. Um, but you know, those are kind of the two big engines that we have right now for building institutions are, you know, right. companies, which now means venture funding, uh, 20x return at a 95% failure rate in three years, or uh, government regulation, you know, and, and, and that kind of institution. And, the, you know, and I mean, I think in some ways... You know, let's give it a hundred years and see what it looks like. Right. I mean, you you foresaw the the chaos of this moment. I know it wasn't that long ago, but it was in 2011, where you said uh, in in one of your uh, essays online, you said, "Sadly, the problems of the old societies are hardly vanishing into a mist around these new emergent groups. In many cases, the new entities are having to confront the issues that society has tried to ignore much more directly." There are no decades-old strategies of forgetting, not seeing, avoiding. Then you say, 2011, which sounds so long ago, 2011 has been only a rehearsal, a tiny taste of what will likely be decades of chaos. To the extent that it is remembered in history, it will be remembered as the year before 2012, the year before things really started. In the coming year, I expect to see a massive response from the organizations that are seeing their narratives dissolved. Much of uh, much of the course of the next decade will depend on how deeply those institutions are able to either suppress or co-op nascent network structures. 
And in some ways, you can apply that to the, the Trump revolution. In other words, the, the way that, that democracy itself is trying to deal with a certain kind of disruption reminds me of the way you know New York or London tried to deal with Uber, say. Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, it is Uber was an existential threat to certain networks of circulation in cities, whereas like the the thing that is happening with Trump is somewhat more fundamental. And the because the scope is so much broader, there is less recourse. You know, there isn't, well, you know, MTA or TFL are still working just fine and aren't going to go away. And yes, we have a we have a, a situation with the taxi cabs, but it doesn't mean that the fundamental rule of law has broken down. Um, right. And I think in some ways, the thing that we're seeing in this moment, like this is a this is a couple of iterations further. And like, yes, we got bits and pieces of backlash of institutions towards network structures. But what we also got in some ways kind of more impactfully was existing institutional scale adversaries adopting tactics of network warfare and scaling them up a lot more. And instead of attacking specific injustices or trying to create alternative structures within the room afforded by those networks, they're simply trying to take down you know, like fundamental structuring, um, structuring concepts like the rule of law. Um, right. You know, and in some ways, like, you know, the things that Russia is doing, you know, assuming that we, assuming that we um, hold that discourse to be reasonable, which I think it is, um, you know, these aren't particularly new, you know, there's a long history of these tactics, but now they're being deployed at a different kind of scale. And that, you know, scale, uh, what was it? The Chairman Mao quote, quantity has a quality all its own. But Right. But the thing is, the interesting thing is, so on the one hand, which I, I love it as a quote, you say that empathy doesn't scale, but uh, confusion, suspicion, and paranoia do scale. <laughs> well, it's not even that they, they don't scale, but they're noise, right? These are... Um, you know, if you have a if you have a graph structure and you introduce noise into all of the edges, and especially if you're introducing noise, just kind of broad spectrum noise at a background level, you don't need very much noise for many types of system to um, to you know to become overwhelmed. And I mean, the one of the core problems here, you know, if you have a system where you have very strong community ties those community ties are much harder to break down. They're thicker, they're based on deeper forms of interdependence. But when you have a society that is already heavily atomized, you know, and that is already mostly operating through this very, very diffuse network of connections, there are places where it's easier to, you know, it's it's easier to inject noise. And this isn't quite to provide a, you know, this isn't a valorization of the old days exactly. This is more that we have built a system that turns out to be irresilient in many ways. And I think that we are, you know, it, it also contains seeds of resilience, but we're still figuring out how to deal with them and figuring out how to activate them.
right. I mean, another another line of your inquiry, which for me is really relevant to this, is kind of the the our our determination to maintain this illusion of individuality and selfhood in the face of an increasingly networked reality. You know, in one of your essays about um, where, where you're talking about there is no future, which is another way of saying the same thing. In other words, that the future uh, distracts us from the present that we're in. You say, uh, uh, our production of narratives runs very deep. We create the self as a distinct entity, different and separate from the world, and create a narrative about how that self has interacted with the world through its history. This even is where the problems start. We try to live in that narrative instead of in the real world. The self we create doesn't really exist, and the narrative we create is more fiction than real. And I think that, and and I should say, I should caveat that by saying, creating and living in fiction can be an incredibly powerful tool for political change, as long as you know what you're actually doing. You know, as long as you you remember that you're doing this thing. You know, this is something that I've argued at a, at a completely practical level. It's really interesting to look at the toolkits that people use to design, you know, for instance, social networks, right? They're very much toolkits, mm-hmm. you know, experience design. The experience that they're talking about there is the individual experience, and that is the thing that is designed. Right. UX, UI is the individual yeah. user. There is right. no practice... It's not community experience, social. What is that? That collective well, and, experience. And I mean, this is, hmm. um, you know, the the phrase that my friend Andy Nordgren uses is participation design. You know, and this is looking at a participation frame that says, okay, you know, yes, we have a set of personas, and they have their individual interests, but the 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 participation actually happens between personas and between different parts of the community. And that's the thing that we actually really care about designing. We don't necessarily like, you know, yeah, it's useful to consider individual experiences. And certainly there are, you know, every system has interactions that are individualistic, but a lot of what is interesting, you know, if you've got the, um, if you've got the, the, the in-house wiki for some organization, right? You know, there's the person who always starts pages. There's the person who cleans up pages. There's the person who is really unlikely to start a page, but will absolutely go through and flesh out all the details and find the citations. And those are participatory roles that are happening between people. And you want to encourage and shape those interactions you know, and trolling and griefing and all of these things, these are also participatory roles that we want to discourage. But there isn't a design discipline that focuses on those things, those interactions as those participations as the first class structures. We see uh, similar things with context collapse. Very few um, social networks and Mastodon is actually kind of interesting this way, and I've been keep meaning to go dig into it properly because because it's federated and it has come up with this sort of understanding that each sort of federated unit, each server will have its own kind of community norms, and the the technical way that federation operates helps to surface some of those local norms so that you have 
even just a tiny little bit of friction against context collapse. You sort of have an idea of whose living room you're in and what the ground rules are in this living room. And this is something that is not, you know, is not common. And a lot of the a lot of the abuse problems before we started seeing the really organized kind of modern trolling campaigns, a lot of those abuse problems were coming from cases where somebody found themselves in somebody else's living room, had no idea where they were, and operated as though they were in their living room. And then you get these, you know, and then fights break out. And because these systems are built around an engagement, you know, the system understands, uh, uh, you know, a pitched street fight as good and encourages it. Right. Which is not really, uh, it doesn't bode well for. <laughs> exactly. This is, this is one of the places where these systems have served us poorly. And I think that a lot of the, you know, the organized attacks that we're seeing are just opportunistic, right? This is, this is, you know, it's not that the Russians had a grand strategy here. Like, no, of course not, you know, but when they say, you know, when they saw an opportunity handed to them, they ran with it, you know, the same way, right. You know, lots of different groups of trolls and griefers on all sides have done in a lot of different contexts. Right. It usually occurs to them in the moment, not as some exactly. 400 year exactly. arc and I, I think one of the really interesting <laughs> things, one of the things that I find really fascinating is there were folks inside DOD who really deeply understood this and came up with this whole idea of net-centric warfare, which then at some point, somehow the DOD sort of forgot what it had, what it had come up with and made the mistake of thinking that, oh, net-centric warfare, right, cyber, the fifth domain, and you know, and now they've gone down this this rabbit hole instead mm. of realizing that it's no, you know, it's just normal warfare, except your command and control infrastructure and the kind of mental understanding of reality of everyone in itself is in play. You know, and it doesn't actually change anything in a fundamental way as far as like it's not a new domain it's just a new way of seeing all of the existing stuff and i think that that failure of understanding is in some ways it's probably endemic to it's it's the problem of we built a system so we don't understand what the system actually means whereas if you are looking slightly more outside, it is easier to understand what things are. Right. The old sort of fish swimming in its own water. You know, how does yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. You know, and that, you know, it, it brings me kind of to my my final maybe existential question. Um, from, from your perspective now, uh, do you, I mean, this is sort of the, the fundamental question of team human, really, is, is, is humanity itself more network than individual. In other words, do you think that human beings are really just kind of cells in this larger organism that we're becoming conscious of or is that more really a metaphor? I human beings are both individual creatures and also completely inextricable from the collective whole. And I don't think that you know, this is this is um, some models are are useful. All, all models are wrong, right? You know, it is 
both of these things are true at the same time. And I don't know that, I think even the framing of more is wrong because it implies a, a separation between those two realities, which I think, you know, the, the two have to be true at the same time and always have been true at the same time. You know, it is both true that every mammal is an entity unto itself. And also that certainly, you know, all the primates at the very least, and really most mammals are, are very fundamentally communitarian creatures, you know, even if they are, even if they exist often in isolation in different ecological contexts, they exist in an isolation that is part of an ecosystem and part of a food web and all of these things. And in most cases exist in much, much tighter social structures. I think that we as early 21st century humans coming out of a capitalist society probably need to go think about ourselves as non-separate from our fellow humans a lot and to think of ourselves as primarily creatures of our community and our society just as a as a corrective to you know, 200 years of growing up with capitalist atomizing poisoning in our in our kind of cultural mix. Right. You, you read something like, you know, Secret Life of Trees, and you see how, oh, trees are not individual. They're all connected under their roots, and there's mushrooms that can help them communicate with each other, and they send out warnings and save each other's lives. You know, it's not, maybe it's not so much that, oh, humanity needs to evolve towards a more collective, organismic uh, sensibility, but we're, we've always been there. We always will be there. It's just that we kind of forget it sometimes. Yeah. And it's more that, you know, maybe humanity, you know, I mean, I guess the the biggest challenge is always compassion, right? Um, you know, and that's compassion towards others. It's compassion towards the self. And it's also compassion towards the whole. And I think mm. that learning how to be kind to us, to capital U, us, is, you know, I mean, that's the challenge, you know, and that is, that is capital U us in terms of all of humanity. It is capital U us towards the entire biome. And capital U us towards all the people that I am. Exactly. (laughs) You know, um, you know, and to understanding that, that, you know, Zuckerberg is wrong. We are all multiple people. We should, you know, and those multiple people all need their own spaces. And I mean, I think in some ways that is the, you know, that is the big challenge of the 21st century. I mean, it's it's always been the big challenge for humanity for its entire existence. But, you know, we are we are now somewhere where our grasp fundamentally exceeds the scale of our empathy in ways that are you know, unthinkable for most of human history. And if we learn how to deal with infrastructure inequality and infrastructure sustainability or unsustainability at the scale of the entire planet, then things are looking pretty good, you know, and that implies coming to terms with a lot of that empathy. And if we don't, well, you know, we've had a good run for globally organized civilization, and maybe the next folks will have a better shot. 
You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Eleanor Seita. You can find out more about her at dymaxion.org, D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N.org, or go find the link at teamhuman.fm, where you can also sign up to be a subscriber on our Patreon, uh, which is reaping great bounties for those who have signed on. Uh, They're coming for free to our event in San Francisco at Gray Area, uh, and I'll be doing more, more things and more premiums and more free tickets and great conversations on our Team Human Slack. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.